invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll be reading the first 13 verses this evening. The word of our God, 1 Kings 11, beginning in verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their idols, to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. For the sake of your father David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would greatly move our hearts as we gaze upon your word. May your spirit apply it, and may your spirit take hold of us with it this night, for the glory of your name and for our good, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I don't know how long or short today's message is. It's a pretty basic story, and all of you being churched, uh, it isn't a, a difficult 
passage to take apart and analyze. Back in 1 Kings 9, 1 through 9, God had warned Solomon of exactly what we read of in this chapter. Uh, Here, chapter 9, verses 4 through 7 again. God says to Solomon, Now if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart, and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you <coughs> excuse me, keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. Now we we saw at that point that powerful thought that you and I aren't Solomon. And that's good to remember as we look at the text today to a certain extent. We aren't Solomon. Solomon sins, all Israel suffers. Because Solomon's sin is the sin of the mediator, the king, who stands between the people and God. And so thankfully for us, our king who stands between God and and us doesn't fail like Solomon. And so that's good news. That being said, God warns us, as he warned Solomon, of a great many dangers and disasters that can come upon us due to the results of our own sins. And so as we look at our chapter tonight, we see Solomon foolishly falling into this type of of, uh, gross sin, and yet how easily we could, in different sins, do a very similar thing. God had warned Solomon what will happen, and now it happens, just as uh, all of us knew it would, the whole time. I don't know about you, but having... uh, I've never preached on first that part of First Kings before. This part I preached on Elijah, but I I was struck at how long it took before we got to negative things about Solomon. Uh, maybe when I'm reading my devotions, I just go through it all in one week, and then you're to the bad stuff. But it, it really surprised me. It took us six months of sermons on the good stuff about Solomon, uh, and yet we we knew it was coming. Here is his fall. Uh, He was doing so well. Just last week, we saw that the world heard about him. And what did they hear about Solomon? They heard of his fame. They heard of his fame, which belonged to the name of the Lord. It's one way to literally translate chapter 10, verse 1. That for so long, he had it so clear in his own mind, so that it reflected in the minds of the people that the fame of Solomon cannot be taken apart and separated from the name of Yahweh. God is the one who has given him fame. He had it so right for 20 years. It's actually 20 plus years. It's a couple of pages for us. But it's 20 plus years. We, we know it was 20 plus years because in chapter um, 9, we read that uh, it was a 20-year period for him to build the temple and his house. And it's at least that long 
before we get to this chapter. So more than 20 years of having this clear in his own mind. But now, now he has been caught off guard. And I think this is an important lesson for us because it's not that he slipped up one time early on. It's that, it's that by the end of his life, we, we read right here, so that when Solomon was old, verse 4, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He was marrying those wives at least 20 years earlier. It took at least 20 years for those relationships to turn his heart to the point where he is worshiping idols. He is caught off guard after years of having it clear in his mind that the glory belongs to God and all worship belongs to him. So I think this is a very real challenge to us. In fact, in our passage, we see a progression. A progression of sin, a progression of letting his guard down that leads to him uh, going deeper and deeper into abomination before the Lord. So there's uh, where Peter remembered last week that I asked if anyone could catch the beginning of sin in chapter 10, and did anyone pick up the beginning of sin in chapter 10? Anyone brave enough to want to say it in the middle of a worship service? Asher, because we can't demote Asher. We were joking about demoting Peter if he got it wrong. But... If that's one, you've got me beat, and that might be the first one. But uh, it, what, what would the other be? The lions on the on the throne. Yes, if you so if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, you have God's definition of what the king is to be and what he is not allowed to do. And in chapter 17 verse 16 of Deuteronomy, we read specifically, "Do not trade with Egypt and don't get horses from Egypt." So don't trade with them at all and definitely don't go after the greatest trade that comes out of Egypt, their horses. Now, what do we find right there at the end of chapter 10? That he traded a great deal with Egypt. And specifically, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Uh, but in chapter 10, verse 28, we're told he also had horses imported from Egypt. Uh, so right there, we see the start of sin, uh, uh, unless there's that previous sin, uh, and it's not that he's never sinned before, right? But but here in terms of kingship, in terms of being the representative of God, he takes this first step. Now, I, I imagine for him, if he even picked up on the fact that he was going against Deuteronomy, which he may not have done, but if he did, I'm, I'm sure it was easy to make an excuse. I don't know what that excuse would be, but I'm sure I'm sure it was easy. It's just horses. It's just trade. I trade with everyone, so why not Egypt too? Or whatever the thought might be. But it starts there, and then it progresses. In verses 1 and 2 of our chapter, we read that he multiplied wives, which doesn't that feel like just a, a colossal understatement? 
multiplied wives. Me and I were talking about how many wives different people in the Bible had today. And uh, after talking for a few minutes this afternoon, I asked her how many wives Peter had. And uh, because we'd been talking about Solomon and Jacob and all these other, she said, I don't know, 13. Uh, it, because you just don't expect there to be a single wife after all of these guys have way too many wives. Uh, but, of course, that's, that's an issue, isn't it? It's an issue for even the person who has one uh, extra wife. That, that means two. I, I stated that weirdly. I, I knew it as soon as I started saying one. Two wives, right? There's not a single story where, hey, this worked out really great for everyone. There isn't, is there? Hannah has conflict. And, and her husband, therefore, has conflict in his house. Because there are two women there. That poor other wife. I, I think we need more sympathy for her. It's not a great scenario. Solomon, Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines, adding up to 1,000 women he's juggling. That's, a, I think, easy for all of us to see how that's the next step from horses. Who cares about horses? He had a thousand wives. But you see, it started with the horses, didn't it? It started with making friendship with Egypt, which led multiple times we've heard about his having the wife uh, as wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. So it started with friendship with Egypt that led to a daughter of Pharaoh as wife. And then it's almost like all these others were easy after that. Well, he had the daughter of Pharaoh as a wife. And then women from the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. Verse 2, in case we're dense, points out all the nations whom the Lord had specifically said don't marry. To idolatry. And, uh, of course, Deuteronomy 7... Uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 17... Uh, says in verse 16, don't multiply or don't trade with Egypt. But here's what it says in 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. Uh-oh. Well, God multiplied the silver and gold for him, didn't he? That, that wasn't a sin before. God multiplied the silver and the gold for him. That's okay. But Solomon multiplied the horses and the wives. And that's not okay. It's a slide into sin, which taints everything else, doesn't it? All the gold of Solomon can't buy him out of this situation. All the silver which God had given him that was like nothing, it was like paving stones, doesn't make up for idolatry. And we find that he builds these temples. It, it only takes a sentence or two in our text, but it took decades in his life. He married these women over a period of years. They turned him when he was old. So first the, the horses and the marriages. Then he's got the marriages. And, he, and we've read in previous chapters as well, he starts building the temples for these women. If you love me, let me worship my gods. That's probably how it went, don't you think? 
if you, if you really love me, you'll let me worship my gods. You don't have to come, Solomon. You, you have Yahweh's temple there. That's fine. But, you know, I really miss home. And I really miss my gods. So if you love me. And then comes the third step, the idolatry. If you love me, you'll come with me to my gods. Or, or maybe it was a little different. Maybe it was, if you're really so wise and enlightened as you pride yourself to be Solomon, then you'll give Moloch a try too. Because the enlightened person, that, they, they, would, they would try all the options. It's easy to pick fun at, at Solomon, but I, I, hope, I hope we see the subtlety of sin and the progress of sin and, and how sin can lead us to abomination. No, notice that that is used. Whenever these idols are mentioned, the abomination of this country, the abomination of that, there are a number of things we could say about that, uh, but I, I think the most primary that the Holy Spirit would have us note is to remember that these abominations are why God sent them to destroy the Canaanites in the first place. Remember why there were all those years in Egypt between Abraham and Joshua? Because they had not yet gone as fully into their abominations so that God brought judgment, right? He gave them those years. Go and look at it. This is God's own self-declaration that they have not run out their clock yet on the abominations. But now they had, and so God's people were to come in and take the promised land. And here is the golden, the platinum king of Israel. And he falls into all the abominations, which... God had said before. In fact, notice some of these, these names here. I'll just pull two of them that we're a little more familiar with out. We're, we're told that uh, he, he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Ashtoreth was the concubine of Baal. And you worshipped Ashtoreth by going into a a temple prostitute on a high place and committing certain actions that were supposed to please her and get her, Asherus, this, this stone pillar, wood pillar thing, uh, excuse me, but turned on with Baal so that they would bless you with fertility. So it, when we read that Solomon went after Asherus, that's what he's doing. He's got a thousand wives, and he's going to go up that hill too and interact with that temple priestess prostitute. That, that, it, it's not just as if this is ju a, a just, but it's not just that he's got this little stone statue in a garden that he goes and burns incense to occasionally. That alone is in idolatry. But look at the type of idolatry. How do you get there? Uh, or... Another step in the process, number seven, Moloch. And do you remember what Moloch worship entailed? Kind of the exact opposite, right? The one's a fertility rite of, of immorality. The other is burn your child, your firstborn, at the altar. 
so that you'll please Moloch. This is what Solomon's doing. Now, I, I, I don't know that he actually took his child and burned a child to Moloch. Probably he didn't progress that deeply because later we're going to be told about the king who went that far. And we're not told that of Solomon. But that's still the false worship he's permitting to take place, even if it's in secret and even if he's not uh, actively involved in it. He's setting everything up for that type of thing. This is what he's getting into. With, with all of this, uh, one commentary uh, caught my attention. It, it, he, he, he said, with this move, this movement of sin, Solomon detaches wisdom from God's gracious covenant. He detaches wisdom, which before had been in the fear of the Lord, from God's covenant promises. He, in other words, stops letting it be known that the fame of Solomon belongs to the Lord and starts making it just the fame of Solomon. He is, as uh, de Graff, the, the great um, uh, Sunday school material uh, uh, book, uh, Promise and Deliverance, the graph says he is the Enlightenment King. And Enlightenment tends to go along with pluralistic. And pluralistic leads to subjective truth. Here's my God. But wives, why don't you keep worshiping your gods? Whatever, whatever works for you eventually leads to, maybe it can work for me. Well, th this is all just sad and uh, hard to think of what else to say about this, except one, one thing about Solomon I do want to bring up, and it will, I hope, lead us to our... Uh, to our application this evening, but one question we might ask is, can this man even be a believer? Can Solomon possibly have ever been a real believer? And where is Solomon now? In heaven or in hell? If, if this passage alone is what we read, what would we have to conclude? I think it would feel pretty obvious if this was all we had of Solomon, that this man is in hell. But I, I do think there are a number of hints that this wasn't his end, even though it's such a horrific place we find him in his old age. But I think there are a couple of hints here. One is how God talks about Solomon throughout the scriptures. And think of just even how Nathan the prophet introduces Solomon to David when he's born by saying this is the one God loves. It's, he's not saying he'll be named the one God loves. Solomon, uh, Nathan the prophet says to David, God loves him. I, th I think that's a powerful thing we need to remember about our sovereign God. But I think pairing that with the end of chapter 11, a passage we won't get to 
um, well, we'll get to probably next week, and that is how Solomon exits in chapter 11, verse 43. We read, Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. That's the, that's the phrase that only the believing kings are given. As we, we don't catch it yet because he's the first king since David, right? But as we keep going through first and second kings, there's going to be two endings that we find for the kings. One of them is he died. And they buried him somewhere. But it's never in Jerusalem, the city of his father, David. All the wicked kings don't get that title. They don't get that association with David. But the ones that are godly men, to varying degrees, some of them surprisingly, we wouldn't have thought of as godly, but the Holy Spirit tells us they are. And then he ends with, and he was buried in the city of David, his father. And Solomon gets that. That's a strong hint, I think, from the Holy Spirit that Solomon must have repented at some point. And what a thought. What a hopeful thought that a man who fell even this far into obscene abominations, into sins that, couldn't we read this passage and so easily become cocky? There's no way I'm ever going to have a thousand wives. There's no way I'm ever going to, right? There's such extreme examples. It would be easy to get arrogant. But in fact, Solomon, in repentance and being accepted by God, was buried in the city of David, his father. That shows us there's hope for the worst backslider. There's hope for the worst backslider. If only that one will repent. A third thing I think that suggests to us that this is not Solomon's end is the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it, it's popular in our day for especially, I think, even Reformed pastors to say, well, obviously Ecclesiastes wasn't written by Solomon. It, it was written by someone who uses the idea of being David's son, king over Jerusalem, as a, a poetic device. Well, I, I think that's just utter, utterly ridiculous, even though I'm saying that. There's far wiser men than I who say that. But to, to make that kind of argument because, well, because the author of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher and Solomon never is referred to as a preacher, seems far less uh, powerful of a thought than the author of Ecclesiastes saying, I, the, the son of David, was king over Jerusalem, when we know there's only two options for that that are literal. Either Absalom or Solomon. <laughs> Obviously, it's not Absalom. But Solomon writing Ecclesiastes, what is the tone of the book? If you read Ecclesiastes, isn't it the tone of an old, weary, and broken man? That's the tone. The author has been places, and he's done things, and he's weary. He's weary of everything except the fear of the Lord. He's broken from everything 
except the fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes, I, I believe, is Solomon responding. God here rebukes Solomon. And I believe Solomon repented and then sought to tell younger people than himself to go the right way and not follow him in his abominations and in his sins. And yet he doesn't mention idolatry anywhere in Ecclesiastes. I think that shows his wisdom. He mentions things which we could so easily excuse, unlike idolatry. He mentions all sorts of things that become idolatry when we give them the wrong place in our hearts. Work, philosophy, pleasure. Even in chapter 5, self-centric worship. But he never mentions idolatry. He's drawing us to see the subtlety of sin over years of your life. And he draws us then to the conclusion, don't be like me. End well, don't just start well. Here, here his conclusion. You know it. Actually, most of you could probably say it out loud. I'm not asking you to, but you, know, you could probably quote it because you know this conclusion. But as we think of Solomon and his failure, we need to remind ourselves over and over again. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, Solomon says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Don't be like me, says Solomon. Remember, remember your Creator. Remember the fear of the Lord. Remember, you don't have to trade openly with Egypt for it to be an abomination before the Lord. You don't have to go to the high place of Asherah for it to be an abomination to the Lord. Even the secret things of your heart can drag you away from the Lord your God. So, fear God and keep his commandments. Paul challenges us in a similar way. He uses the, the idea of being in an army. How is it that we avoid a 20-year slide from being okay with one secret sin over here into outright idolatry? How do we avoid such sin and, and uh, backsliding? 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, through 11, we're told to think of ourselves as soldiers. He writes, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, and when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do 
But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify each other, just as you are doing. There, we are challenged. How do we avoid the 20-year slide into such tragedy? Be on your guard. Be sober. Isn't it interesting? It's not only the way to avoid what Solomon did over a 20-year period, it's also the way to be ready when Jesus suddenly appears, if that's tomorrow or in 20 years. Be on your guard. Act like it's always daytime. Don't get lazy. Don't get lethargic. Don't get drunk with this world. Or or we could hear the Apostle of Love's conclusion for us. His application for us tonight as we think of the tragedy of Solomon. John simply says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.